This program is funded through a More Perfect Union initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities. With me today is Rafi Andonian, celebrity historian, to explore the American dream. All right. Well, thank you to Idaho Humanities Council for doing this. I'm very excited to be here and to talk about the American dream across time. I am a celebrity historian. I have a history in the National Park Service, as you can see there in the photo of me years ago on a Civil War battlefield working. And of course, we have fought over the American dream so often, both bloody and not bloody, and including on these battlefields or sometimes in protests. So we're going to walk through a few centuries of seeing how the American dream came to be and what we're fighting over and how it's contested. Looking back to 1607, what many consider the beginnings of the pre-United States. Now, of course, in 1607, there was no United States, but this is the first permanent English colony, which is in Jamestown, Virginia. And it started with the Virginia Company. The Virginia Company was a corporation, and that corporation had a royal charter with King James supporting it. But the corporation had investors that funded this colony to go across the Atlantic Ocean from England to the North American mainland and try to make a profit by bringing back resources, much like you would in a colony, to then uh, produce and manufacture in England. Now, what's fascinating here is a couple of things and why I think of the beginnings of the American dream here. One is that you have this public-private partnership, right? You have the king, the crown, and a corporation working together on this venture, hoping to make money. And two is once the folks that are here in Virginia, or in Virginia, when I say here, here in North America, but particularly in Virginia, which you see some scenes of here with the James River uh, up in the upper left and a monument to John Smith, who we all know in the middle and on the right, you see an archeological site that is still remaining from the era in Jamestown, Virginia today. But when the people were here, the Englishmen, they had a hard time surviving for several years. They needed the help of the local American Indian groups to get by the difficult winters and food supply and just knowing the landscape and the environment around them as well as diplomatically, because there are different groups that are not always friendly. And so in that context, they first had the help of the indigenous people, but later eventually would no longer have that as they would continue to build rivalries and perhaps not exactly have great relations, right, between American Indian groups and the Englishmen. But down south in Virginia is not the only place that this was happening. While in Virginia, it was a profit motive, up in New England, particularly in Massachusetts, it was more idealistic, not so much the corporation, not so much about manufacturing, not so much about finding raw materials, but creating an idealistic society. And here is where we often would look to for our ideals of the United States. When we look backward, on the left is John Winthrop. He gave a famous sermon in 1630, early in Massachusetts lifespan, that the, that the United States or what we consider United States today, but Massachusetts, particularly for him, this region would be seen as a city on a hill, a shining beacon in the darkness. And you would later hear, for example, President Ronald Reagan referred to a city on a hill in the 1980s. So this still has staying power with us today when we look toward what the United States has to offer, not just the economic opportunity that we see in Virginia, 
but the ideals of religious freedom and an idealistic society where groups fit together, family structure. A lot of these ideas come from the Puritans in Massachusetts in this period. Now, go 100 years later, in the same place in Massachusetts, in 1749, you have Jonathan Edwards. He gives a sermon also. Now, his sermon is called, one of his many sermons, the famous one is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this is one of the key pieces of literature and uh, oratory that gives fire to what is now called the Great Awakening, which is a big religious fervor movement that takes place across uh, the North American English colonies in the mid 18th century. And in the process of doing so, there is this idea that while you might sin in the hands of an angry God, there is an opportunity for redemption, an opportunity to redeem yourself and to improve and to be saved again. And these principles, to me, serve into the American dream later because we often think of the United States as a place where you get renewal, a place where you can leave back the sins or the bad things or the bad positions of the old world and come to the United States and visualize and dream all these things that we're seeing, whether it's the economic opportunity that Virginia saw, whether it's the shining city on a hill, the land of opportunity that John Winthrop saw, and for Jonathan Edwards, the opportunity to redeem yourself, to leave back your sins and to renew and rebirth as an American. Now, these ideas, just a few decades at, on, the, on the tail end of the Great Awakening, come together in the American Revolution. Now, we all know Thomas Jefferson and the 4th of July and the Declaration of Independence, but there is some different origins there and we can trace that in all kinds of places, but specifically in Virginia, going back, remember where the Virginia company started there a century and a half prior, there is something called the Virginia, the Virginia Declaration of Rights. And that, was de that Declaration of Rights was passed in the Virginia Convention right there in that building, right in that building, which is the Capitol building in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is still there today. And the person who was the primary drafter for it was George Mason, that you see pictured there. The Declaration of Rights used language like talking about life, liberty, happiness, property. These are all things, concepts, and words that would later be used by Jefferson in a variety of writings, of course, but especially in the Declaration of Independence. And this is done just months prior to what later, to later, uh, to do, I should say, months prior to the Declaration of Independence. So, of course, people at this point don't know the Declaration of Independence is coming, but later, with this fresh on their minds, this is what Jefferson is thinking about, among other things, to write what he does. And there, for the first time in our conversation here, we see the birth and the notion of the United States. Remember, there was no United States in the prior examples, but later on, when the United States comes about as a country, it leans on those ideas. It draws its history and identity backward to draw upon those stories to help form its identity as a new nation. Because that's part of how you get legitimacy as a country is to create some kind of common identity. But of course, in this process, not everyone was participating equally. At the same time that you have these declarations of rights and these ideals, you have, of course, American slavery in what is now the United States by the 1770s. And that, of course, is one of the big contentions that comes into play for decades to come in the young country, in the young United States, 
not only limited to the South, where the slavery existed as an institution, but including in New England, where they profited from the slave trade, trading across the Atlantic Ocean. So in not participating equally, one way that we can look at this is manifest destiny, as it was known. Manifest destiny, as the term implies, is that it was obvious, it was clear, it was manifest that the United States was destined to cross North America, the continent, from sea to shining sea, from the East Coast, and eventually to the West Coast. That was obvious to the proponents of this ideology. Thomas Jefferson on the left there, famous for the Louisiana Purchase, among other things, right? The person who wrote the Declaration of Independence was visualizing a, a land of independent yeoman farmers. Yeoman farmers are middle-class farmers, independent property owners, which if you think about it, to this day, we have that ideal, right? What happens when somebody comes out of school? They should you know, come out of school and buy a house or get married and buy a house, right? We still identify buying a house and maybe the white picket fence with the American dream. And so that notion of owning your little piece of property, your little piece of land still exists with us today. Now in the process of doing so, however, Manifest Destiny is tied to groups that were not participating in it. Look at the painting on the right side there. Very famous in the 1840s, circulating across the United States, depicting Manifest Destiny, depicting Lady Liberty over there, depicted as a white angelic woman that is crossing the continent across the savages, as they saw, that were on the landscape, bringing civilization to the wild, because we saw the West as wild, which we still, to some extent, do, despite all the long history that is there of people, not only from the Spanish colonial days of European descent, but of course, well before any Europeans had ever come to North America. In the process of expansion, intertwined with that was not only some kind of exclusion, if you will, of American Indian groups across the West and of Mexican and other Hispanic groups that were in that region, but also to exclude Black Americans because there was a fight that eventually led to the Civil War with a series of compromises. For example, the Missouri Compromise in 1820 or the Compromise of 1850 or later on the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. All of these are pieces of legislation in the United States Congress that are fought over by slave states and free states, that is states that support, had slavery and states that did not have slavery, that wanted their interests to expand out west. And these fights over whether the newest state and the latest state that is coming into the Union from the west should have slavery or not were part of what eventually led to the American Civil War. So tied with this American dream of visualizing the opportunity that we see both economic and idealistic, both of the farm and the civilization that we thought we were getting across from the East Coast, if you are a English descendant or white American from the East Coast, tied with these is the exclusion and eventually the war. And so now during the Civil War in the 1860s, shortly after that period of the big manifest destiny mentality, you have, of course, the Battle of Gettysburg, one of the defining battles of the Civil War Civil War, of course, is for four years, and there's two main objectives. First, of course, to preserve the Union as the Southern states that, that formed the Confederacy had left the United States. But they had done so because they wanted to protect their interests in slavery because they did not think 
that Abraham Lincoln or others in the North were willing enough to protect slavery enough. Now, Lincoln, in the beginning of the war, did not always see slavery as an important cause to end during uh, in the process of the war. However, during the war, he comes around and says, you know, we need to get to a root cause of this, in part because of Frederick Douglass being on his ear saying, you know, if you preserve the Union without ending slavery, you're going to have the same problem again in the future. So they add the objective of ending slavery to settle this and get this done so they don't have to deal with this again. Well, one of the big places that Lincoln helps announce this shortly after the Emancipation Proclamation that is legally trying to declare slaves free, what happens is he speaks at the Gettysburg Address. After the Battle of Gettysburg, just a few months later, when they established the National Cemetery, which you see images of right here on the screen. And in the upper right, what I particularly enjoy showing here that I appreciate is, this, is the graves of the unknown soldiers, because those graves are so small because they're numbered. They do not have names. Men who sacrifice their identities in order to give what Lincoln called in his Gettysburg Address, the last full measure of devotion. But also in his Gettysburg Address, he refers to unfinished work. The unfinished work he refers to is what he would call the new birth of freedom, right in his Gettysburg Address. So what you see here is a civil war becomes this moment, this moment of thinking about who we are as a country and defining and redefining the American dream, the unfinished work that she saw that the country had to get that new birth of freedom. And you notice that that new birth of freedom sounds a lot like the man who gave the, ser the sermon for sinners in the hands of an angry God with, of course, Jonathan Edwards talking about that opportunity for redemption. These ideas and these mindsets permeated were the bedrock of how we thought about ourselves despite being decades or sometimes centuries apart. One way I feel connected to this is with this pen right here. This is a pen made of the wood of a witness tree, a tree that is that witness that was next to Abraham Lincoln when he gave the Gettysburg Address. And to me, this is a very direct connection to that moment to understand that we still carry with us today this notion of fighting about the American dream and fighting what that new birth of freedom means and debating what exactly these issues and how they should unfold, whether economically, ideologically, in our identity, and even our history. And this pen was right there to hear Lincoln say those words, not as a pen, as a tree at the time, but now in the form of a pen that I keep with me from my time having worked at the battlefield of Gettysburg and having led thousands of visitors across that very cemetery. Now the military is an important place where these things play out. Almost a century out after the Civil War, and after now we had a constitution that was reworked because of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that ended slavery, um, uh, protected equal rights and equal access, and of course provided voting rights, of, meaning that they uh, prohibited discrimination based on race. Now it was still only for men, not including women, but at least what happened in the process here is they tried to, again, uproot the cause of the, of the Civil War, eliminate race-based discrimination, at least legally, but it wasn't over. Almost 100 years later, these issues were still going on. And the reason I point out Harry Truman 
and World War II, as you see the images of the Second World War and Harry Truman himself here, is because people often forget that in the Second World War, as we fought as an army of liberty, an army that brought liberation to the world from oppression, from Hitler, and of course, ending the war in the Pacific theater with the atomic bomb, justifying it because we were bringing our ideals. And of course, eventually built allies with both Germany and Japan that we have to this day with the alliances. But we did that, the Army of the Liberation, as segregated soldiers. Most people forget that the soldiers who fought in World War II were segregated in white units and black units. That was common. That had been true since the Civil War when black soldiers were first allowed to enlist. And we had done that for all the wars since, for almost a century, because we believed that black soldiers were not as capable of, as white soldiers. With Harry Truman in 1948, with an executive order putting together a committee, ended that. And so it's only relatively recently in the context of history, when you consider that we had more decades of, and more wars fighting with segregated soldiers than we have with integrated army military units. And Harry Truman addressed that, helping bring, if you will, access to the American dream through the military. And the reason I say access to the military, American dream through the military, is because many soldiers who fought, who were not white, often did so to prove their patriotism to prove that they too are full Americans, that they too are willing to commit and risk that sacrifice. And in recognition of that, Truman understood that and had this executive order. So the military is very much intertwined with notions of civil rights and participating equally in the American dream. And so speaking of participating equally in the American dream, that leads us to the civil rights movement. Now, Martin Luther King, I have his lifespan there because his life, of course, was cut short. He could still be alive today at the age of, he would be 93 years old, younger than my grandmother. And Martin Luther King, of course, is not him by himself in doing this movement. You can see, you know, uh, many people there on the Washington Mall. And of course, he was not the only leader, but we see him as the face of the civil rights movement. It's no surprise that the civil rights movement took place in the aftermath of the World War II because many soldiers, as big as World War II was, many soldiers came home and they thought, well, why did I serve my country and I'm treated as a second-class citizen here? Remember, we still had Jim Crow segregation through and after the end of World War II. It's not until Brown versus Board of Education the Supreme Court decides in 1954 that legally ends segregation, although it would take another 20 years to actually implement some of those laws. So you think about it. Yes, we may have integrated the military shortly after World War II, but society on the home front was still segregated. So some soldiers or veterans in this case would come home and recognize that. And that ignited a certain passion and a certain movement to say, well, maybe we should do something about this. And many people came to the fore, but Martin Luther King being one of the big figureheads that we remember today. And on the left there is the home that he grew up in, another site that I used to work as a park ranger, as I did at the Civil War and now here at the Civil Rights, uh, at a Civil Rights site, right in downtown Atlanta, the home of Martin Luther King as a child. Now, I don't work there anymore, but what it did to me is it reminded me that I, 
I was dealing with some of the same issues that I had seen from events that took place a century prior, historically. And the moment that I remember most transcends even people here in the United States. I was standing there on that porch that you see with the door and the staircase. And I was leading a group of kids with a chaperone, kids between age nine and 13, scarred, some of them lashes on the neck. One of them had the skull pushed in. Clearly these kids had been through a lot and they didn't really speak English. In speaking to the chaperone, as I was on that porch walking up the stairs, the chaperone revealed to me that these kids were slaves, escaped slaves. This is in 2010. Escaped slaves in 2010, age nine to 13. So let's call it born around the year 2000, plus or minus. That escaped from the illegal human trafficking trade in Haiti. They had only recently come to the United States through this program that the chaperone helped lead. And the site that they said they wanted to see was the home of Martin Luther King. To me, it was such a powerful example of two things. First, the power of place. They wanted to see the place, to be there, to feel connected as I did with this pen and when I was at the National Cemetery at Gettysburg. But two, the power of the American dream through a figure like Martin Luther King to transcend just those of us that live in the United States, to be global and across time. Because remember, Martin Luther King was killed in 1968. These kids were born 30 plus years later, and were in front of me 40 plus years after Martin Luther King had been killed. And yet this legacy meant something. The American dream to them meant something. The land of opportunity, the image of it meant something to them and they connected to it through history. Don't forget to come back next week to get even more context on the American dream with Rafi Andonian.